0: This is a podcast about Jeopardy!
1: Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy! podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy! episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily.
0: And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of April 26th, 2021. On Monday... April 26th, we have the contestants Nick Arcero, a writer's assistant originally from Moundsview, Minnesota, Lyrica Lawler, a digital media specialist from Big Rock, Illinois, and Kelly Donahue, a bank examiner from Winthrop, Massachusetts, whose two day cash winnings total $48,000. This is also the beginning of the second week with Anderson Cooper. This week, Winnings and consolations will be matched by Jeopardy and donated to Justice Defenders, which sounds pretty cool. Anderson said that they uh, like they, they they provide resources and training for people in like Kenya and I think mm-hmm. other parts of Africa to become like to study law and you know advocate within the system for themselves and for others.
1: Yeah, well, that's so. cool.
0: Then we have the Jeopardy round categories: official state songs, at the movies business acronyms and a brief 18th century stuff, fantastic beasts and starts with three consonants.
1: Did some of those official state songs look familiar to you?
0: At least one did uh, because it was a daily double of Mm mine on day four. I think. Yes. Day four. Yeah. Yeah. The $400 clue where the Columbines grow. That's Colorado. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I imagine most people outside of Colorado know associate, columbine with colorado because of the columbine high school shooting mm-hmm. uh but it is named columbine high school because the rocky mountain columbine is our state flower
1: i learned that during your jeopardy episode i mm. I, I only had the columbine high school shooting association mm-hmm. we had a a triple stumper at the 200 hundred dollar level which we don't get too too many of mm-hmm. um in 18th century stuff when the King of Great Britain wanted a barge party, Handel composed the orchestral suite called This. Uh, Lyrica tried What is Messiah? and Kelly followed it up with What is Hallelujah, which the Hallelujah chorus is part of the Handel's Messiah, mm-hmm. um, but they were looking for water music.
0: That's right. Yeah, because clearly, I mean, everyone would remember Messiah is an oratorio, not a suite. I mean, I mean, <laughs> come on now.
1: Yes. <laughs> How could they all have forgotten? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it
0: slips your mind. I know. I know. Yeah. The number of times I've made that mistake. I get it.
1: I think people would recognize some of the themes from water music, even if they don't know the name
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: of of that.
0: Yeah. shows up in a lot of like commercials and mm-hmm. uh, period pieces, things like that.
1: The first Daily Double is in that 18th Century Stuff category at the $800 level, and it's the 21st pick. Nick finds it, and at that point he has $3,200 to Kelly's $4,800 and Lyrica's $1,400, and Nick wagers $1,600 and gets the clue. When his sound effect method was copied in a staging of Macbeth, John Dennis accused perpetrators of this. Now an idiom. Nick can't figure out an, an an answer and he ends up saying what is being copycats the correct response here is what is stealing his thunder which i had not known the origin of yeah that me neither AM. but
0: That's it's super cool super cool <laughs>
1: yeah so that that was a fun today i learned for me Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Kelly has seventy six hundred, Lyrica has twenty six hundred, Nick has six hundred, and we have the double Jeopardy categories: female authors and some male ones too. What? Yeah. Um, what? What? What are they doing here? I feel like we had approximately equal numbers of female and male authors, and and what? Like what? What point are they trying? to make here. I don't know. I'm confused. QNOU, Stringed Instruments, The Cabinet, Hard Science, and Radio on the TV.
0: Going back to that category, I just think of my like music history professor in grad school who was like If you can say something in fewer words, just use fewer words to say it. Authors. Exactly. Authors. (laughs) You can say it in one word. (laughs) Are they
1: annoyed that people are sort of highlighting that they've switched from using authors or scientists without regard to whether it's all male? Uh, What am I trying to say here?
0: That they they have tried to, they've seemed to move away from the convention of either like authors or women authors and scientists or women scientists, that kind of thing. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there has been some, uh, some buzz about that, especially um, I'm trying to remember the, the job title of the, the uh, like the head writer or whatever, Mm -hmm. like the new head writer came in and I think the chief writist is what it's called. (laughs) Chief. Yes. The chief (laughs) writist. Yeah, so there there was some, there was some buzz about that. I, like are they trying to be cheeky about that? I don't know. Anyway.
0: I don't, I don't know either. It, it just is a weird it's a weird title. Yeah. We do get reference to one of at least my parents favorite shows of all time in the radio on the TV category at the $1200 level. Venus Flytrap was the nom de DJ of Gordon Sims on this Ohio set sitcom. Lyrica got it. That's WKRP in Cincinnati. And I thought it was funny, but I was probably just too young when it was on Nick at Night or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. I am not sure I've seen a single episode of that show. Oh,
0: there, there is at least one truly classic episode, the Thanksgiving episode where mm-hmm. they do a promotion and their idea is to Toss live turkeys from their traffic helicopter all around the town. Uh, little do they know that turkeys don't fly. <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't doesn't oh, that's go well. Great. Uh, yes, it, that yeah, it's a funny show, but it, I think it holds a place of nostalgia in like my parents' generation. Anyway, the eight hundred dollar of the stringed instruments category, the Hungarian chimbalom is traditionally associated with the music of this itinerant people. Kelly rang in and said, who are gypsies? Those were correct. And Anderson followed up with, or the Roma. And I, I think, I don't want to be an apologist or anything like that, but I learned very recently that gypsy is actually an offensive term. Yeah. That it's a slur. For the vast majority of my life, what I was taught is that those the people who are the Roma, they are called gypsies. And to me, and it, it like in my knowledge, that was not a, it was not a slur. It was simply the the word, like the, mm-hmm. the title for those people. Now I know that they are called Roma and that gypsy is not a, it is an offensive term and, and meant to be offensive or at least was in its origin. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I know that a lot of people expressed discontent that that was accepted as a correct response, given that we would not accept other racial slurs on <laughs> Jeopardy, right? As correct responses. Yeah, that's,
1: that is a, that is an important point. Yeah. We absolutely would not.
0: Right. But, but to, again, not to be an apologist for like that, but I think to, I don't know that we're at the, at the point socially. With people
1: knowing that that yeah. term is not acceptable. That we could, right. that, that they can fairly just reject it as a slur. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, I do think they, sh- I, I think they should have reshot it. You know? Yeah, yeah. you know what, that,
0: you're right. That could have, they, they could have very easily said, we're going to reshoot it and we need you to say Roma. Yeah. Like, you're getting credit, <laughs> you're getting the money, we just mm-hmm. need you to say Roma. Like, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they they reshoot things for various reasons. They reshoot things because somebody sang a song and there might be a copyright issue, right? Like they they reshoot things because of mispronunciations. Mm -hmm. Um, Not if a contestant has mispronounced something and is therefore not getting credit. But like when the host mispronounces something, they get to go back and and redo it.
0: Right.
1: You know, they just they reshoot things. Um, I think I think it would have been appropriate here.
0: It's a really cool instrument, by the way. All controversy aside, if you check it out. Actually, this whole category I thought was really fun. I actually learned how to play the Balalaika from the $1,600 level uh, when I was in grad Ooh. school. We, All of us who took a, a like an ethnomusicology class, we had to choose a, a traditional instrument from somewhere else in the world, and I chose the Balalaika. It is incredibly hard to play. Mm-hmm. Anyway, daily double number two is in the hard science category. Uh, pick number eight. It's at the $1,200 level. Kelly finds it and he is at 8,400. is at 5,000 and Nick is back at 1,000. He wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. The number used to designate a pencil's hardness relates to the ratio of clay to this material, a form of carbon. And he gets correct with what is graphite.
1: And daily double number three comes just three clues later as the 11th pick. Adds a $1,200 level of the cabinet and Nick finds this one. He has 1,800. To Kelly's eleven thousand four hundred and Lyrica's five thousand four hundred, and he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. Henry Knox in seventeen eighty nine and Kenneth Royal in nineteen forty seven were the first and last secretaries of this department. And he says, "I don't have it." Uh, that is, War. The Department of War became the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. Um, so he drops to zero.
0: Unfortunate miss because it's not. It's not like the department actually went away. Right. It basically got a rebranding, and that was it. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Kelly is up at 19,800. Uh, he had the lead for pretty much the entire game and, and wasn't really uh, in danger of losing it. But Lyrica has gotten herself up to 15,800 <clears throat> without a daily double, which is pretty—like, that's a good score. That
1: is impressive, yeah.
0: Yeah, and Nick is back at 2,400. And the final Jeopardy category is city origin stories. And the clue the mythical founder Byzus consulted the Oracle of Delphi before establishing what is now known as this city. Nick wrote, What is Byzantium? which is not what they were looking for, and he Mm -hmm. wagered everything 2400, so he dropped to zero. Lyrica wrote, What is Istanbul? which is what they were looking for because they're looking for what the city is now known as. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wagered 7,000. So she goes up to 22,800. And Kelly also had what is Istanbul, and he made a cover bet of 11,801. So he wins his third day, Mm -hmm. which becomes relevant soon.
1: So on Tuesday, April 27th, we have the contestants John Prokop a legal assistant from Uncasville, Connecticut, Dana Schumacher-Schmidt, an English professor from Tecumseh, Michigan, and Kelly Donahue, a bank examiner from Winthrop, Massachusetts, whose three-day cash winnings total 79601 And we should pause to acknowledge there is a lot of kerfuffle happening about Kelly Donahue's intro from this day. Mm-hmm. So during his introduction, he made a hand gesture, which he says he was indicating three for his three wins. And it is true that on his second game, when he had one win, he put up one finger. And on his third game, when he had two wins, he put up two fingers. He made his three in kind of a, a an unusual way. I think our listeners probably have seen it. Mm-hmm there are questions, the, the the gesture is like, it's like the white power hand signal. It's also associated with the three percenter movement and uh, and he says it was unintentional and um, there's a lot of kerfuffle about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an open letter from uh, like 500 I think almost 600 now contestants um, calling on Jeopardy to address it and a lot of people having a problem with that and i don't know if you're if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't looked at the open letter maybe go take a look the thing that i think is really worth lifting up from that is that it's really on jeopardy to be familiar with with how things might be read or Mm -hmm. interpreted Mm -hmm. um and preemptively handle that reshoot things if necessary, um, address things in the moment, like do editing so that intentionally or not, they don't have these kinds of moments. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, as Jeopardy contestants, we were not allowed to wager certain amounts or make wagers that would land us at certain amounts. You got to stay away from like 69, 420, 666, right? All of these numbers that like have coded meanings, um, you know, and I think it's,
0: what what did, what did those ones mean?
1: Oh well, gosh, Kyle, I'm not really <laughs> sure. I'm a minister of the Lord.
0: That's right. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I just I, I I think that they really need to. Probably the kerfuffle will will nudge them toward being more diligent about this kind of thing going forward. I think it's Hopefully. entirely possible that the age of people being allowed to make any hand gestures during the intros is done.
0: Yeah, I mean to to be clear that there shouldn't be an age of that because we were told in our taping days that you are not supposed to do that.
1: That's true.
0: We were told told very clearly that you're not supposed to do any hand gestures, that you shouldn't even wave. Mm. Like they told us not to do that. Now, of course, if you do it, they're not going to like stop taping and be like, you waved. Do it again, Johnny. Right. They're not going to do that. But they told us like more than once that you were supposed to stand there and smile and just wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So anybody doing hand gestures is going against what they're told. And I don't mm. I'm not saying that to be like a narc or anything. Like I don't really care. I don't know. At a certain point you got to enforce it cuz otherwise you have people doing stuff like this. So. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, There was also an episode of Jeopardy that day, so.
1: Yes, there was an episode. People played a game of Jeopardy, Um, and in the Jeopardy round, we have the categories Single Named Singers, Last Names, Let's Visit the City, Children of Zeus, Nothing But a Silent G Thing, Baby, Tiger, and King. Mm -hmm. Leaning hard into the pop culture references here. I am not sure I knew a single one of this single named singers' last names. I should have known Lizzo because I know that she plays the flute.
0: Yeah, I think that actually is the only one that I that I knew. Oh, for and sure. I did. I
1: got Kesha because of the dollar signs, not because I recognized the oh, last yeah, name Seabert. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, the actually the last names. I was like, I don't know why. How am I supposed? Why would I know that?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're single-name singers. <laughs> She's just that's, called Lizzo. That's it. <laughs>
0: right. That's the whole point. <laughs> um, yeah. Enjoyed that Children of Zeus category? I thought, that was, uh, thought yeah. that was fun. I've recently been listening to a podcast that's all about mythology. So, hmm. you know, it's been a lot of fun. We get Daily Double number one in the nothing but a silent G-Thang Baby category at the uh, $1,000 level. Can you imagine Alex Trebek saying that? Category title.
1: <laughs> I wish I wish I could hear All him right. say that category.
0: Uh, I'm sure I'm sure someone's working on like the fake technology to be able to have him read anything. Yeah, uh, it's at the thousand dollar level. John finds it. Uh, he's at eight hundred. Kelly's at six hundred. Dana's at two thousand, and he wagers a thousand as well. He should gets the clue. This adjective meaning arousing emotions comes from a French word for pointed, and he gets that correct with poignant. Mm-hmm. Is that really a silent G?
1: It makes the N say nya instead yeah. of "na."
0: So, so like in Bologna, is the G silent? Or is I, it, I guess so because it's not a, a G, G sound? literally had a fight about this
1: yesterday or witnessed a fight more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course you did.
1: <laughs> uh, mem- one member of my trivia team claimed that French is a terrible language because it has all these letters that you just don't pronounce. And he uh, well, that's fair. He is a, an Italian speaker. He loves Italian. Um, oh. And uh, and somebody started trying to get him on, you know, Ita- it- Italian's silent G's as mm-hmm. in Bologna. Um, mm-hmm. So then there was a whole back and forth about whether making the N say Nya instead of "na" is, uh, in fact, a silent G. Um, so yeah, that's, um, it's a, it's a worthy question. Sure. Um, I don't have an opinion yeah. on it. I I'd, just, I don't know. Oh, I'm kind of of two minds. The other silent G's are not ambiguous,
0: right? No, like, no, those are very silent G's.
1: Foreign or foreigner alignment. Those, those G's are completely silent. I sort of wanted gnome to come up.
0: <laughs> just, just cause.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because no. I started trying to think of words with a silent G and the only one I could think of
0: was, was No, <laughs> That's fair. Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round Kelly is up to 5,400 Dana's at 3,200 and John is at 4,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories Explorers Recent Books, Sciency Stuff Pantone Colors of the Year Let's Play Cowboys and Words That Start with Two Vowels. Now didn't you talk about Pantone Colors of the Year?
1: It was it was in the quiz. It was in the quiz, yes. yes
0: I recall that. I recall mm-hmm. being absolutely astounded that that existed at all.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And here it is, a whole Jeopardy category. Mm-hmm. I felt vindicated.
0: Good, I'm glad.
1: Daily Double number two comes up in the Explorers category at the $2,000 level, and it's the 10th pick. Kelly finds this one. At this point, he has 7,000 to Dana's 7,600 and John's 5,800, and he wagers 5,000 of it and gets the clue. In 1792, this Brit reached the west coast of North America and began surveying it. He tries who is Cook, but they're looking for George Vancouver. Uh, I did not know that that was where the name of Vancouver came from, but it makes sense once I heard it.
0: Oh, I thought he took his name from Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) But that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I also did not know that. I had no idea that that was what that was about. Uh, I thought Cook, too, because the year was wrong. But I was like, maybe I'm remembering the year wrong. But I remember talking about Cook, making it to the west coast of North America. Daily Double Number 3 is in the Pantone Colors of the Year category. It's at the $1,200 level. Dana finds it. She is at $10,000. Kelly is at 0 He had a rough run after that Miss Daily double.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, John is at 8200 And she wagers $2,500. Gets the clue, the color of the year for 2000 was Cerulean Blue, the subject of a famous rant by Meryl Streep in this 2006 film. She gets that correct with What is the Devil Wears Prada? Which is a movie I have never seen, and Probably we'll never see.
1: Have you seen The Rant, though? No. Oh, go find that on YouTube. It's like a minute. Okay. Yeah. That that clip is worth watching, for sure. Okay. I don't know if I would necessarily make a priority of watching the whole movie, although I have seen it. So, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Dana has a lot game with 20,100. John is at 9,400, so he almost... Uh, was able to get into contention, but not quite. Kelly's at 2,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category, US National Parks. And the clue, this subtropical region is a biosphere reserve, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and as of 1947, a national park. And all of them got this one correct. Kelly... Goes first. He has what is the Everglades? That's the answer. And he has wagered twenty-seven ninety-five, which brings him up to fifty-five ninety-five. John also has what is the Everglades and a wager of nine thousand, bringing him up to eighteen thousand four hundred. And Dana has written what is the Everglades with a wager of just five hundred, so not risking her lock. And so with twenty thousand six hundred, she is our champion going into Wednesday.
0: And on Wednesday, we have the contestants Leah Caglio, a product manager originally from Phoenix, Arizona, Harry Paramiswaran, a college student from Xenia, Ohio, and Dana Schumacher-Schmidt, an English professor from Tecumseh, Michigan, who just won $20,600. And they get the Jeopardy round categories, Would You Look At That? Flag on the Play, Landfill with land in quotation marks, In Car Serrated, Modern Hebrew, and America before 1800.
1: I struggled with the flag on the play category, but Leah kind of crushed it.
0: Yeah, she did pretty well.
1: Yeah, she got four of the five. The Mm -hmm. other one was a triple stumper. The triple stumper one was if you block an NFL opponent from behind below the waist, it'll cost you and your team 15 yards as this penalty. And Dina tried what is holding, but they were looking for clipping.
0: Yes, that's a that's a less common one. It's also kind of hard to execute. Mm. Which is why it's pretty rare, but
1: yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm not I'm, as I just said, I struggled with this category a little bit, but like I've, I've watched some football. I'm not sure I've ever heard that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nobody recognized that Canal Street was in New York City. That surprised me. That was in the would you look at that category? At the hundred dollars mm-hmm. level was a very familiar view to me. So I didn't realize that that wouldn't be easily recognizable.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Looks like a place. Yeah. It's- that's fair.
1: <laughs> Daily double number one is the third pick. Uh, so super early in the America before 1800 category at the $600 level. And Dana finds it. She has $600 at this point, having gotten that. Those first two clues at the $200 and $400 levels, and everybody else is at zero. And so she wagers 1000 which is obviously the right move in this situation, and gets the clue, in December 1732, Benjamin Franklin published his first edition of this for the coming year. And she knows that's poor Richard's almanac, so that takes her up to 1600 mm-hmm. And the rest of the round goes pretty well for her, although um, Leah catches up toward the end of the round. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Dana's at 4,800, Leah's at 5,000. Hari is trailing with 200, so he picks first from the double Jeopardy categories. Authors not going places, their TV roles, what a horde, we have such chemistry, AU in quotation marks, all responses will begin with AU, and Get off of my cloud. (laughs) A-U, get off of my cloud. Is the joke.
0: And what a funny one it is.
1: That's a... That's a... slapper. (laughs) I thought the conceit of authors not going places was fun. This was about authors who wrote about places they had not been.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, speaking of that category, Daily Double number two is the first pick of the round. It's at the $1,200 level. Hari finds it, and... The scores are the same as they just were. Uh, so he wagers 2000 which of course he should. He gets the clue. Bram Stoker consulted the 1865 book This Region, Its Products, and Its People to write about a place he never went. He gets that correct with what is Transylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the AU category at the $2,000 level, my hours spent watching Great British Bake Off helped me out there. If the French and British can agree on one thing, it's that you call the eggplant this, and that's aubergine. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time. Aubergines and courgettes, when they would talk about those, it took a long time before I finally broke down and, like, Googled what they were talking about because I was like, I've never heard of those. And and when they're talking about it, they don't just show it on camera. Yeah. All the, all the other stuff they talk about, they have a camera shot of it right there. But when they're talking about aubergines and courgettes... They don't show it on screen. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. They're making up foods. These don't exist. (laughs) Yes.
1: Courgettes are uh, zucchini. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, For any listeners who do not know. Um, Daily Double number three is at the $1,600 level of Get Off of My Cloud. And it's the 10th pick. And Hari finds this one as well. He's at 10,200 at this point to Dana's 6,400 and Leah's 6,600. He wagers 4,000, which I thought was a smart wager. He gets the clue poet John Milton coined this precious term for the upside of a cloud. He didn't come up with anything. I thought he was trying to say something at the very last second, um, but it was not going to be correct anyway. And the correct response here is what is a silver lining? and the reason I thought his $4,000 wager was smart here is that he drops to 6200 which is like right in the thick of things with the other two. Mm-hmm. And with 20 clues on the board, it's a fine position to, to have dropped to. You know, right. I feel like the $4,000 was enough to really give him a boost if he got it right. And if he missed, he was going to still be, you know, kind of right there with the other contestants.
0: Yep. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Dana's at ten thousand, Harry's at thirteen thousand eight hundred, and Lee is also at thirteen thousand eight hundred.
1: We mm-hmm. have a tie.
0: Ooh! And the final Jeopardy category is Hollywood Legends. And the clue: This director was quoted as saying, "I believe I can take any sixty pages of the Bible and make a great picture." Dana gets it correct with who is DeMille, and she wagers five thousand. Hari made the correct wager of $13,800, but got it incorrect with who is Mill Gibson. hmm Not a bad thought. Right?
1: Yeah. In, He's in, thinking of the passion of the Christ. Right,
0: in, in a more more recent idea, but but yeah, that's incorrect. Leah wagered only 3795. Which is I, I can see the math, I guess, if she gets it wrong she's still five dollars above a zero wager from Dana because if Dana's betting that both of them will bet at all she mm-hmm. might do a zero wager I so I can I can see the thought process there yeah um, but I, I believe we have established that statistically that is... the best shot is to give you to give yourself is to bet at all in this situation yep so yeah that's Cecil B DeMille mm-hmm. director of ten Commandments yes. That means that Leah is the winner at 17595 Now, if Dana had bet everything, or almost everything, mm-hmm. Dana could have won that game. Yes. it's The wagering there was... It
1: it's a little wacky. And, like, how could Dana have known, you know? Oh, yeah. No, um, no,
0: no, no. Like, yeah. I don't I don't know what you do if you're in the other position other than just be like, I guess I bet something or nothing. Just as long as I don't yeah. drop to zero, it, it doesn't really matter. I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Emily Sands, a vice president of operations from Chanhassen, Minnesota, Colin Beasley, a private investment professional from West Palm Beach, Florida, and Leah Caglio, a product manager originally from Phoenix, Arizona, whose one-day cash winnings total 17595 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, To Your Health, Former Child Stars, Geographic Top Tens, Masterpiece Slash Theater, Annoying Word, and Dice Roll Names.
0: Yes. I got all the dice roll names. My dad would be very proud because he's who I learned them from. I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, but uh, from my, my very first episode on the show... I know I've mentioned this. I started out very poorly. I got myself into the red with a couple bad guesses and had to work myself out. The first few clues that I ended up getting correct were about beer and gangsters. And when we were watching it (laughs) in my like watch party, we got to that first commercial break and my dad was like, well, you learned something from me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, "You're, you're right. I did. That's funny.
1: Yeah. I only knew snake eyes. Hmm. If I can fuss briefly about the $1,000 clue in masterpiece slash theater, the clue is the persistence of memory, a 1931 oil on canvas piece by him is on display at MoMA. And you can set your watch by that. Uh, The you can set your watch by that is to help clue that you're supposed to think of the melting clocks Mm -hmm. painting. Um, And this is Salvador Dali. If you don't know a lot about him, you should go back and listen to Kyle's deep dive. But listen, here's the thing. Every time I've gone to the MoMA, I have stopped by where that painting is supposed to be. And it has always been on loan to somewhere else. You cannot set your watch by that. It's not there. Um, I would like to see it in person. That's funny. But I haven't been able to.
0: That's really funny. (laughs) Yeah. Daily Double number one is pick number seven. It's the $400 clue in geographic top tens. Colin finds it. He is at 1,000, Lee is at 1,400, Emily's at 800, and he wagers 1,000. The clue is it's the world's third largest body of water by surface area. He gets that correct with what is the Indian Ocean?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It is only a $400 level clue, but thought it was pretty easy.
1: <laughs> yeah, agreed.
0: So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Lee is at 4,200, cons at 5,200, and Emily is up to 8,000. The double jeopardy categories are historic governors, character-titled novels, languages, pop culture priests, order in the court, and what's the dealio with I O in quotation marks, which really wants me to pronounce, makes me want to pronounce it. What's the dealio? But that is not how people say it. Mm-hmm. Did you know all of your pop culture priests?
1: I didn't. I thought I was going to because, you know, priests, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, no, these were these were uh, parts of pop culture that I'm not familiar enough with to have gotten all of them. I did know the $400 level uh, on this show. Reverend Lovejoy told Ned, there's an oil stain in the parking lot that looks just like St. Barnabas. Uh, that's the Simpsons, <laughs> of course. Um, I could not remember the lyrics of Eleanor Rigby, Hmm. enough to remember who is writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear, that is Father McKenzie.
0: Yeah, we did a, um, I was in, like, fourth grade, and the music teacher at my elementary school was, like, an old hippie. Uh, So we spent a good number of, we spent, like, three class periods in a row, like, listening to Eleanor Rigby and just having him, like, talk about it. And we were, we were like nine years old. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'll always remember the lyrics though. Cause we had to memorize them or something anyway.
1: Yeah. It was weird. Um, yeah. I didn't, I was like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like I could sort of like vaguely recall, you know, but like, yeah, no, I don't have the, I don't have the lyrics of Eleanor, Eleanor Rigby memorized. I recognized the guy. F- I, I I haven't seen much of Fleabag, and I recognized the guy as like, oh, that's like Moriarty from Sherlock. But I didn't know that actor's <laughs> name. He's Andrew Scott. Oh. Um, but that category is where we found daily double number two at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Leah finds it. She has thirteen thousand to Colin's eleven thousand six hundred and Emily's eighty eight hundred. Those are good scores. She wagers twenty two hundred. And gets the clue. Ewan McGregor plays the Vatican's camerlengo in this 2009 film based on a Dan Brown book. I lost the coin flip on that one, but she knew it. It's Angels and Demons. Mm-hmm. I was trying to remember if 2009 would have been uh, Angels and Demons or The Da Vinci Code.
0: Ah. I've read I read both of those. I didn't. Did I read The Lost Symbol? I think I might have read The Lost Symbol too. Yeah, I read them. I, you know, I, I know he it takes a lot of flack for not being a good writer, and I'm not going to argue with that, but they are very easy to read. It goes quickly, yeah. and they are entertaining.
1: We used them as kind of foils in an early Christianity class I took in college, and that was fun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so, you know, they're fun. They're they're readable, Um, just People sometimes used to, they would read the Da Vinci Code and then they would go find the nearest clergy person and be like, no, I'm not a Bible scholar per se, but... <laughs>
0: but let me tell you about Jesus' family yeah, and no, stuff.
1: seriously. Um, yeah, so as long as you know you're reading a novel, like, mm-hmm. by all means, enjoy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Have you heard about Opus Dei? Yeah. Daily Double number 3 is in the Historic Governors category at the $1,600 level. It's pick number 28 late in the round. Emily finds it. Uh, at this point, she is up to $9,600. Leah is way up at $17,200. And Colin is at $14,000. Uh, and she wagers 9000 Woo! Yes! That is... Go for it! Yes! The right move. I mean, it's a $1,600 level, so it's going to be tough, but... could be tough yeah
1: i mean it's it's a right move i think you know like if you don't like the category and you want to you know you think you're more likely to be able to come from behind in final jeopardy then like you know sure i guess you can go smaller but like
0: yeah yeah going
1: into final jeopardy with the lead is so much of a stronger position that i think you're really you know i think i think this is the right Mm -hmm. i think this is I think this is a really good, solid move, and I wish we would see more moves like this.
0: Yeah. Uh, She gets a clue. In 1921, Channing Cox succeeded this upwardly mobile governor of Massachusetts, who went by the same two initials. And she gets it correct with who is Calvin Coolidge.
1: Seeing her work through that was great.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, you could definitely suss that out even... You know, not knowing if Calvin Coolidge was a governor of Massachusetts, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Emily has taken the lead with 18,600. And then Leah and Colin are tied at 17,200. And I could not really remember uh, what you're supposed to do if you're tied for second place.
0: Yeah. That's a tough one. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, The J-Archive calculator suggests that you should do an all or nothing bet Mm -hmm. from that position. J-Archive wagering calculator is generally pretty good. My final wager was not what the J-Archive calculator would suggest, and I stand by it because I felt like I understood (laughs) one contestant's wagering strategy and not the others. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, I had seen Kyle make a lot of wagers, and I felt like I really understood what he was going to do, and then Raymond was a wild card, because it was his first game, and he hadn't found any daily doubles, Um, you know, so like the J-Archives wagering calculator does not account for any kind of, you know, like, knowledge of your opponents. It's just... It's just statistics. But anyway, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty solid, well thought out. Um... We have the final Jeopardy! category, odd words, and the clue. A homophone of a letter in the alphabet. This five-letter word sounds the same if you remove its last four vowels. And all of them got this one correct. Uh, So they go to Colin. So yeah, what is Q? Uh, Q Q-U-E-U-E. That is correct. He's wagered 7,000. Not really sure why he came up with that specific number, but sure. Leah also has Q and has wagered 13,000. And Emily has Q as well and has wagered 18,000, uh, which is a cover bet and some. So that makes her our champion with 36,600, which, whew, that's a lot of money.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on Friday, we have the contestants Andy Goldstein, a customer support manager originally from Teaneck, New Jersey, Sheila O'Donnell, an attorney from Euclid, Ohio, and Emily Sands, a vice president of operations from Chanhassen, Minnesota, whose one-day cash winnings total $36,600. We have the Jeopardy round categories alphabetically first, 2020 vision, seven-letter animals, African-American memoirs time travel in movies, and around Los Angeles.
1: Andy struggled through much of this game. Mm-hmm. He ultimately had a recovery where he was back pretty solidly in contention at one point. Um, but he got himself into the red partway through this round and stayed in the red.
0: For a long time.
1: For quite a while. Yeah. You could sort of see, like, panic set in where where he started, like, going for clues that he maybe wasn't as confident in can be kind of a tough mental place to to navigate. Mm -hmm. So I really felt for him. The alphabetically first category I thought was interesting in that you want to be quick on the buzzer, but if you get it wrong... Then everyone get then the other two contestants get to start thinking. Okay, you know what comes before Aquarius,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: What comes before center field? You know, unless you've, I guess you could name something that doesn't fit the category. Sure. So I thought there was kind of an interesting sort of narrow it down strategy thing there.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that.
1: Daily Double number one comes up in the African American Memoirs category at the $400 level. It's the eighth pick. Emily finds it and wagers. 1,800, uh, that's a true daily double. Sheila's at zero at this point, and Andy had 1,400. That was uh, before he missed a few and got into the red. She gets the clue. He writes about the depression he faced during his 1991 confirmation hearings in My Grandfather's Son. And she gets that one correct with Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at the end of the Jeopardy! round, Emily's in the lead with 7,800. 7,800. Sheila's at 2,800 Andy's at negative 600 at this point. And we have the double jeopardy categories, gladiators, lighthouses, sacred books, ranks and titles, rock, paper, scissors, which turned out to be about rock songs that had paper or scissors in the, in the title or lyrics and C3P, oh and uh p and o are in quotation marks um so each correct response will have three p's and one o mm-hmm. it's a little complicated
0: yeah <laughs> if if you're able to come up with a guess you can tell hopefully pretty pretty much right away if you're in the category or not yeah and we did get to mention the puppy bowl at the 1200
1: time yes level. yes we did we had a couple of local dogs in the puppy bowl mm-hmm. this year, so I was I was watching with uh, with enthusiasm. Nice. In sacred books at the sixteen hundred dollar level, we had a Andy had a near miss. Uh, the clue there was compiled from oral Japanese. The Kojiki, or Records of Ancient Matters, is an important source book of this religion. And I think Andy was a little shaken by you know sort of the the difficult time he'd been having. Mm. Uh, so he rang in and first he said, "What is Shinto?" Um, and then he quickly corrected himself to Shinto. Anderson Cooper accepted it and added Shintoism. My understanding is that Shinto is a, a sufficient name for the religion itself. You don't need to add an ism yeah. on there necessarily. Yeah, that that's
0: my understanding as well. Yeah. You don't say like Islamism, right? It's, it's just right. called Islam. It's called Shinto. Yep.
1: Yes. So I think accepting Shintoism would have been fine. I don't think that they needed to kind of correct him to Shintoism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was, I was glad that he was able to salvage the mispronunciation. Yeah, because that's
0: so rough. Yeah. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in the Sacred Books category. Uh, it's up at the $800 level. It's pick number 14. Emily finds it. She is in the lead at $14,200. Uh, Sheila's back at 5200 and Andy is f- at $1,400. So she has a lot of room to work with. She wagers 8000 Why not? You know, she'll still be in the lead if she gets it wrong. And she gets a clue. Isa Ibn Maryam, a prophet in the Quran, is better known as him. Uh, And she guesses who is Methuselah, but that is Jesus, son of Mary.
1: Yeah, that Ibn means son. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure a lot of people necessarily know if you haven't, you know, studied Islam that Jesus and Mary and several other figures from Christian and Jewish scriptures mm-hmm. um, appear in the Quran. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they so.
0: come from the same part of the world, uh, share, you know, a story lineage back to Abraham. Yeah. But I, I agree. I, I don't feel like that was an $800 level clue, at least it, it, not for this category. Cause to me, like to me, the Shinto clue was a lot easier, because it's like like religion from Japan.
1: Name a major religion that is that is specific like, to Japan. Yeah, it's yeah. like
0: Shinto. Like I, I know almost nothing about Shinto, but it's still like, oh, that's Shinto. And even the yeah. $1,200 clue was like the Hindi name for a spiritual teacher. You might not know that, um, but that's a guru, right? But I I, mm-hmm. I knew those pretty well. I also knew the $2,000 clue um,
1: right. from yes. the Book of
0: Mormon, but yeah, to me, that one, you have to I don't know. Yeah, You have to know what Ibn means, and you also have to know that it that Mariam is, like, Mary, and you have to put that together. Right. So.
1: Yeah, I think there was a little bit more inference to do in this one than in some of the others. And it was a little bit more tangential to the stated category, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I would expect, you know, for a sacred books category, you're likely thinking you're going to need to produce the name of the sacred text or given its name, maybe it's religion or, you know, um, yeah, but I did appreciate them kind of highlighting some religious commonalities. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it might, this might've been a a better fit at a, at a higher dollar level, I would think. Uh, daily double number two, Two is in the Lighthouses category at the $1,600 level, and it is the 22nd pick. And Emily finds this one as well. Uh, she's made her way back up to $7,800 to Sheila's $6,400 and Andy's $5,000. And she wagers $4,000. Um, so she's willing to risk dropping into third place in order to try and try and get that bigger lead she gets the clue today this Egyptian city is home to Al Muntaza lighthouse Um, and she gets that one correct with Alexandria Uh yeah I think you're just supposed to kind of make the connection Egyptian city association with lighthouses and think of like the lighthouse of Alexandria right
0: I mean you don't have lighthouses of the world memorized (laughs) hmm Very few. <laughs> one of that's just one of those lists you gotta have. Anyway. Uh so at the end of the Jeopardy Nope. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Emily is up at fifteen thousand four hundred, but it's not a runaway. Sheila has is in reach at eighty four hundred, and Andy is at thirty four hundred, so he's he's gotten himself, you know, to stick around, which is good. The final Jeopardy category is books and authors and the clue. In books by him, the Kingdom of No Land Ruled by an orphan named Bud, borders a country called Ix, where Queen Zixi reigns. Andy wrote, "Who is and A-N-D? I'm Not not sure who he's going for. Hmm, unless it, yeah. unless that's the name and I, which I'm not aware of. Uh, and yeah. he bet everything, so he drops down to zero. Sheila wrote, "Who is Roald Doll, Which I think is not a bad guess, but that is incorrect. She wagered fifteen hundred. And Emily got it correct with whose bomb? It's an L. Frank bomb. And Mm -hmm. she made a cover bed of 1401. So she wins again.
1: Yeah. I couldn't get this one figured out in time.
0: I went to C.S. Lewis because I was like, man, is that one of those other parts of, like, next to Narnia? Mm -hmm. Because I know he has a world beyond just the country of Narnia. And it's like, okay, I don't... I got stuck there and was, like, trying to remember it. I didn't even get to... The Wizard of Oz, like, mm-hmm. so. So
1: good on Emily. Once I saw her response, I was like, oh, that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did not think of uh, the Wizard of Oz in time. Yeah.
0: Yep. And this was the last episode with Anderson Cooper. So goodbye, Anderson. Thank you. And we will have uh, Bill Whitaker, I think, on Monday.
1: Yes. So we've reached the part of our show where we remind you that we have a Patreon. You can find it on the internet at patreon.com slash potent potables. We've got some content on there, some goat recaps, some uh, some outtakes and, uh, and it helps us with the expenses associated with uh, making this podcast so that we don't lose money on it. If you'd like to go over and check it out. We would love that. Um, we also want you to, if you would be so kind, leave a rating on this podcast. All you have to do is tap the stars, preferably five of them. If you want to leave us a review, it doesn't have to be a long review. It helps us out with the algorithm uh, and and we'll read it on the podcast. And we want to remind you to do something for your community. That's a... Uh, always important. And uh, if you're looking for a place to get started, we point you toward blacklivesmatter.com and communityjusticeexchange.org. Equal- and and uh, if you've been paying attention to the rise in acts of violence and hate crimes against the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, you're probably as concerned about that as we are. Another place that you can look to give some some funds is the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe. So if you if you have some, some spare cash, go check them out and uh, give them your support if you can. Thanks.
0: Yeah. All right, Emily. All right, What are we Kyle. talking about?
1: Um, are we talking about enzymes?
0: We are not. I really, I did consider it.
1: Are we doing anything about like Poland and the Pomeranian Lakeland?
0: Uh, another one that I considered, but no.
1: Okay, what about George Vancouver?
0: Nope. We're not talking about George. I really, I did consider all of them. And then I was like, I just, I like just, the last deep dive wasn't about Cook. But, you know, the Hawaii Mm -hmm. deep dive was pretty recent with with Captain Cook. So no, I I chose not to. I actually chose to uh, go pretty much straight in my wheelhouse. Uh, This is from the Friday game, the around Los Angeles category, the $400 level. When Quincy Jones came to LA, he didn't know Sunset, but he knew of Central Avenue, hub of this music style, and now of a festival for it. Sheila guessed what is hip-hop, but that's jazz. Mm-hmm. That's jazz. Jeez. So I, 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 I kind of went back and forth on which way to go with this. I was like, do I talk about Quincy Jones specifically, or do I just talk about jazz? So I'm just going to talk about jazz. So this, you know, we might call it a deep dive. This is going to be one of those more, like overviewy kind of dives. Because I know a lot of us know some things about jazz and some of us know quite a few things about jazz, but I want to give like kind of a timeline so that we can really put jazz into like a, a into its actual temporal context. Uh, Cause there are different kinds of jazz uh, evolutions of jazz throughout the last uh, hundred plus years. And Understanding where those actually fit into, like, American cultural history is pretty important to actually understand understanding why jazz, like, sounds the way it sounds and how it actually played in. So um, I'm going to kind of do, like, a history, a jazz history deep dive. Nice. So here we go. The earliest kind of jazz really emerged in the early 20th century, 1900s into the 1910s. Uh, it's in the 1910s, you know, toward the end of that decade, that we really get the idea of jazz as a real distinct form of music that, you know, has certain characteristics and a certain style, and uh, that eventually led to the other kinds of jazz that we have. Um, but if we want to look back at the roots of jazz, obviously, uh, you got to look at the African roots, because it Jazz. I mean, I'm gonna. I'll start out by saying like, jazz was created by Black people, created by African Americans, perpetuated by African Americans, advanced by African Americans, uh, is very much uh, integral to African American culture throughout the 20th century. Looking at the like the roots of it, there are uh, musical roots from essentially slave music, right? The blues which evolved from field haulers and African-American folk songs, as well as the spirituals that, that uh, enslaved people would sing in the fields and also use as kind of a coded language. These early forms of music that were common amongst African-Americans in the latter half of the 19th century contributed to the development of jazz, not only because it, it was kind of like a, a sort of unifying style among Uh, that subculture, but also because they were able to incorporate African musical style into those things, which, if we think about that, that speaks to rhythm and the importance of rhythm, particularly polyrhythms, which is kind of the idea of one rhythm being imposed on top of another. So if you don't know what a rhythm is, a rhythm is simply a pattern of sound and usually a repetitive or a repeated pattern of sound. And so, Jazz, we often think of as having a very complicated rhythmic uh, structure, rhythmic kind of identity, and it comes from the African tradition. If you look at the European tradition, the classical music tradition, rhythm was not particularly complex at all. It, could, it was always like on a beat, halfway in between a beat. That was it. I mean, I guess you could look at Chopin and get have an argument about that, but that's not what this is about. And then also, that African root bringing in the real like expressive vocal quality into playing, you know, coming from the european tradition, you played an instrument to make it sound like the instrument, right? The characteristic mm-hmm. sound of the instrument was the was the goal, but these uh like african americans who were taking these classical instruments and playing it playing their own music on it, they wanted to get that kind of vocal quality. They wanted it to sound like them if they were singing. Uh, And so that's why we get the very clearly different sound in early jazz and really jazz throughout uh, its life. Now, I've mentioned a couple of times, like, classical tradition. Obviously, the instruments that are used come from the European tradition, right? All of the instruments in in a jazz band were developed in Europe. And when jazz became something that was written, uh, which was not originally, um, it incorporated you know, the very classical uh, harmonic structures, the the notation itself, as well as uh, kind of an approach to melody and like song structure uh, that all comes from the classical tradition. So jazz is really that fusion of, of the European influence and the African influence. Um, and as jazz progressed, it incorporated more influences, uh, you know, the Latin influence, Afro-Cuban uh, and even further along, as I'll talk about. So, we get this style of ragtime in the 1890s. And for about 20 years, ragtime was very popular. Ragtime is not jazz. We need to be very clear. Ragtime is not jazz. It predated jazz.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it is primarily a piano style, a solo piano style. And it incorporated military, march like steady time in the left hand and syncopated or ragged melodies in the right. Uh, And so this also kind of shows off the African and European mix, right? Because it has that uh, really, like, straightforward kind of left-hand march sound, uh, as well as the polyrhythms in the right hand. Uh, Scott Joplin is the name to know with ragtime. King of ragtime, most well-known ragtime composer. Scott Joplin considered himself to be simply the next in line of, like, great classical pianists. He considered himself... Uh, the the logical progression from Chopin and Liszt into, you know, th- this new 20th century kind of sound. He considered ragtime to just be the new style within the classical tradition. He wasn't trying to necessarily make like a popular form, uh, even though that's what it became. Uh, after that, we get Dixieland, which is the actual early jazz, you know, developed within the early 1900s and maintained popularity into the 1920s. I mean, you can still hear Dixieland, but when I say maintained popularity, I mean, like, large popularity. Uh, it is from New Orleans, which is why New Orleans is considered the birthplace of jazz. New Orleans, of course, was is a seaport city, which meant that there was a, a strong mix of cultures, and especially before airplanes, you know, it was the hub of uh, international trade, right? If they're gonna, if you're gonna go up the Mississippi or come down the Mississippi, you're gonna go through New Orleans. Uh, it also had influence from French, Spanish, West Indian traditions, Catholic, uh, religious attitudes. And it was also a much more, uh, it, of all the American cities, black people in New Orleans had more freedoms, right? They, they, they had more, uh, acceptance. Now, obviously, it, they, Still faced a whole bunch of oppression, but there were more opportunities for them in New Orleans, uh, and so all of this like mixed together led to the development of Dixieland, which is just when a group of people would get together with uh, you know playing different instruments, typically a trumpet, clarinet, trombone, piano, tuba, or string bass, banjo, drums. You know it could be a mix of anything, and they just played, and there it wasn't written. What they would do was the Trumpet would play the melody, clarinet would add stuff on top, the tuba or the string bass would play bass, trombone would embellish the bass line, uh, piano and banjo would do uh, a harmonic accompaniment, and then the drums would just keep the beat, right? It sounds really simple, but that style was very different from anything you were hearing at the time. It was very focused on improvisation, because only one person was actually playing the melody. Everyone else was just adding stuff to it as they saw fit. And they took uh, influence in terms of, you know, like tunes, source material from anywhere. Blues, religious music, military music, ragtime tunes, even classical music. Whatever they wanted to play, they just played it. And so this was a big focus on collective improvisation, like I said. Everybody is improvising at the same time, usually without any written music. Uh, some names to remember with this are King Oliver. He was a trumpet player. Obviously, Louis Armstrong began as a trumpet player, even though may be better known as a singer. Uh, Jelly Roll Morton, who claimed to have invented the swing beat. Whether that's true or not, that's what he claimed. So then we get the swing era, also known as the big band era. Uh, this is like the nineteen late 1920s up into the 40s. And so this transitioned from Dixieland. So by the end of the 1920s, uh, jazz was developing in two directions that kind of went hand in hand. One was emphasis on the soloist and one was emphasis on the ensemble. Dixieland music, because everyone was improvising at the same time, it had to be really simple in its concept. Because if you're trying to get complicated, but everyone's making stuff up on the spot, it's not going to work. Right. Mm -hmm. So in order to accommodate more sophisticated music and include more musicians in an ensemble, written arrangements became necessary, and much more common in the late 1920s. At that point, with written arrangements, someone writing down everyone's part and saying, you're gonna play this at this time, what ended up happening was, you know, a big focus on arrangers and composers, and also uh, a reduction in that collective improvisation. What ended up happening was they would write in places where individual soloists could take a solo, right? And that's where we get uh, a lot of what we think of as like a a jazz band playing a tune. In the middle, there's a solo break where a couple people get up and take solos, and then it goes on to the end. Mm -hmm. That was the format for basically the entire big band era. The ensemble grew. Into what you might think of, you know, you've got a sax section, a trombone section, a trumpet section, a rhythm section, 15-ish players. And this brought in a new breed of jazz musicians. Many of them were formally educated, you know, classically trained in some way. A lot of them came from brass or military bands. And it kind of brought together the musicians who learned by reading music and the musicians who learned by playing music. uh, Which, depending on the band, had certain uh, effects on it. Uh, jazz moved its center from New Orleans to Chicago through this period, and then to New York, and that's really when New York became the center of jazz, because of the recording companies and publishing houses in those in those uh, cities. And this is also when recording the recording industry actually gets going, and the spread of radio, jazz becomes very, very, very popular and learnable throughout the United States uh, during this era. Uh, some of the important people in the swing era are Count Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, Sarah Vaughan. I mean, there there are a lot. I can name a lot of them. Many of them are band leaders as well as musicians. Duke Ellington, Count Basie are piano players as well as Art Tatum. Also, Benny Goodman was a clarinet player. He was also notably white, and the Benny Goodman band was the first integrated jazz band. Hmm. This was jazz's most popular period and hundreds of bands flourished during this time in the 1930s and early 40s. After the stock market crash of 1929, swing helped the country through the Great Depression, right? It, it was an outlet. It was a thing that people could get into. Uh, and also during World War II it, you know, served as a morale boost. As the, the age progressed, as the, these, you know, 15-20 years progressed, the arrangements got got more and more complex. The the arrangers tried new things. Um, and reach new levels of sophistication. Uh, however, before World War II, the weak economy led to a lot of recording companies going bankrupt. But radio managed to keep jazz, you know, popular. You know, obviously, I mentioned Benny Goodman and his band, but jazz, in 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 itself, like helped to show racial integration in a positive light. The musicians, especially, like I'm sure there were plenty of racist jazz musicians during that time, but. In a much more, uh, a much higher percentage of jazz musicians than the general population were uh, very open to racial integration and, you know, v- v- good examples as to, like, how to not be racist in that age. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was a good example and it helped, like, in whatever was accomplished during that time in race relations. After the swing era, we get the bebop era. And this is, you can say like 1940 to 1955, a lot of, you know, these are overlapping time periods, but uh, bebop followed swing. During World War II, many jazz musicians were drafted and called off to war, uh, which left not a lot of talent at home for the big bands that were still trying to perform, and because of gas shortages, rubber shortages... You know, all of the resources going to the war effort, transportation was difficult, so bands couldn't tour anymore. Uh, there were a lot of midnight curfews because of, um, you know, rationing fuel for electricity and all that. There was also an amusement tax that was uh, a 20% uh, amusement tax at nightclubs that included dancing, as well as a recording ban from July 1942 to November 1943, which meant that nobody could record any new material, which meant a lot of bands broke up. So in the in the years of world war ii the big bands really like decreased drastically in number uh and many of them in quality and also kind of because of that or during that along with that uh racism within the music world actually kind of got worse african-american musicians were usually paid less than their european-american counterparts that's Mm -hmm. imagine that right They also had to deal with with prejudice and segregation the whole time, no matter where they were. And because of that, most African-American jazz musicians became increasingly disenchanted with swing music. The more they watched their innovations capitalized on by European-Americans. You think of like the Glenn Miller Band, all white musicians playing pretty watered down jazz, right? That's palatable Mm -hmm. to mass audiences of white people. Uh, And a lot of black musicians were like, well, we got to do something else. This isn't our music anymore. Right. So that's where bebop comes from. Bebop was art music, not entertainment music. If you if you can think of bebop in your head right now, some examples, it's not for dancing. Yep. It's not meant for that. It's just for listening. You sit and listen. Uh, It removed jazz from the mainstream of popular commercial music. Bebop musicians considered themselves artists, not entertainers, and it was a conscious attempt on the part of young African-American musicians to open new channels of improvisation and create a music which reflected the seriousness of their endeavors. Now, I love Bebop, but it makes sense where it comes from, right? And so Mm -hmm. Bebop groups are generally small, right? If you think this is kind of a pendulum swinging back out of the large, large ensemble, small groups that we usually call combos, you know, usually five players, maybe. You got a bass, drums, piano, and then you got a horn player or two, right? Trumpet, saxophone, typically, and that's it. It's very difficult to play. It was designed for improvisation, not elaborate arrangements. Usually, like if you're if you're a jazz musician, you learn the head, you learn the melody, and the chord changes. You play the melody once through as a group, and then boom, you go into solos for, you know, ten minutes or whatever. And then when the solos are done, you play the melody once, and that's it. The tune's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big focus on improvisation. Also, very high energy. Typically, often very fast tempos, though not always. And uh, much more complicated chord progressions. Uh, so it, it was it was much more about the musicians exploring what the possibilities are rather than making something uh, super entertaining. And during this time, we get like uh, Minton's Playhouse in in Harlem and Fifty uh, Second Street. This is where uh, a number of clubs on 52nd street like birdland three deuces the onyx club uh really began to shine they were homes for bebop and we got uh players like kenny clark ella fitzgerald dizzy gillespie charlie parker if you need two names for bebop dizzy gillespie charlie parker they're the biggest mm-hmm. names uh as well as max roach clark terry thelonious monk a lot of these you know next generation of jazz musicians bebop was very much centered in new york Right, uh, so I talked about like where it comes from, uh, and it was also meant to be like kind of a stand against racism. Uh, one particular song that is extremely powerful is Billie Holiday's "Strange Fruit," which I think they just made a movie about. Hmm. I th- I think I'm that's sticking with me. Uh, but Billie Holiday also gained prominence during this time as a as a singer. After Bebop, or and not really that long after Bebop, kind of while Bebop was still going on, we, we have kind of a splintering as different musicians want to go different ways. We have cool jazz, hard bop, and modal jazz. And really, it's kind of like cool jazz is one direction, hard bop is another. So cool jazz is where most of the white musicians went. Chet Baker, Dave Brubeck, Jerry Mulligan, George Shearing... Cool was a reaction to bebop, right? Because bebop was fast-paced, energetic, raw emotion, and cool was meant to take it back—slower-paced, S- more subdued, less emotional, just more controlled. Um, less complicated chord progressions, less uh, intricate melodies. Miles Davis also was a major contributor to cool jazz. He—I mean—he made an album called *Birth of the Cool*, right? And these were usually bebop combos, too. They were, they were still small groups, but they could include more because there was more arrangement going on in Cool Jazz. So again, we see the pendulum kind of swinging back. So Cool Jazz, while it uses a lot of influence from bebop, and especially in terms of its soloing and improvisation, uh, it's more arranged, there's uh, larger ensembles, and it's kind of easier to listen to. On the other side, we have Hard Bop which came after Cool Jazz and was a reaction to that. So it's the pendulum going back the other direction. Uh, it was a younger generation of musicians looking at Cool Jazz and saying, no, 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 Bebop had it right. We need to go back to that. <laughs> um, and so this is happening during the 1950s. Cool Jazz is kind of like 1949 into the early 50s. Hard Bop comes in like the mid 50s. And again, it was like looking at these white musicians who were gaining a lot of prominence in the cool jazz realm and saying like, no, no, we got to take this back. This is our kind of music. And so you get Horace Silver, Art Blakey, uh, Cannonball Adderley, Wes Montgomery, Clifford Brown. Uh, And so hard bop kind of goes back to the faster tempos, uh, more raw emotional kind of sounds, uh, more complicated soloing. And this is also kind of where John Coltrane starts to get his uh, foot in the door. Um, and if you know anything about John Coltrane, his stuff is wild. And then there's modal jazz, which is kind of an outgrowth of both cool and hard bop. Uh, Miles Davis is definitely best known for it, but so is Charlie Mingus and uh, Pharaoh Sanders. This is especially exemplified on Miles Davis's album from 1959, Kind of Blue. It, remit- it is still the best-selling jazz album of all time, and one of the best-selling albums of all time. It's up there with, like, Thriller. Modal jazz is very free. It's very relaxed. It's very open. There are basically no real chord progressions. It's just, like, here's an atmosphere, and now you can solo on it, and then we'll play a very simple melody. Uh, it's, it's very, very, like, very relaxed. Yeah. So, yeah, we've gone from bebop to cool jazz to hard bop, to modal jazz. And then things get real weird after 1959. This is when we get the avant-garde and free jazz movement. So it's a reaction to cool jazz and hard bop. <laughs> free jazz is a reaction to everything. Free jazz says we're not going to be constrained by pretty much anything. They're, they're saying, you know what, you want to you wanna go to the African roots of our music? Then we need to get rid of european harmonies and chord progressions we need to get rid of european song forms why would we use those we are going to play like our ancestors would make music in a purely improvisational way so free jazz is about improvising on the emotion of the moment we get people like uh, anthony braxton ornette coleman especially ornette coleman is really the big name to know and it just it just pushed the limits of what musicians could play and what audiences could accept. A lot of audiences could not accept it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to a free jazz uh, student concert about ten years ago, and uh, it was it was an experience. In yes. a way, I feel like I've been there ever since. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, check out Ornette yeah. Coleman. Oof. Look at free jazz. Mm-hmm. Give it a chance. Like recognize what it is, right? Do not go in expecting to hear a song or at least a Mm -hmm. song in what you think a song is structurally, right? Just let yourself hear what it is and see how you feel. You might not like it and that's okay, but be aware of what it is. What it's not Mm -hmm. is, oh, we'll just play anything because whatever, right? It's not this cavalier attitude of like whatever, it's jazz. It's very intentional to be rejecting of those European influences like it, it is an intentional yeah. choice to be that way not just a random chance on the other hand we have fusion which came in like the late 1960s and into the 70s and this is a fusion of jazz influence that like the more you know bebop and almost swing kind of influence or cool jazz influence and rock and we get groups like weather report and players like jaco pastorius also miles davis and his uh album bitches brew is one of the first fusion albums and it is incredible yeah so fusion kind of came out of a reaction to free jazz because a lot of jazz musicians didn't like the arts for arts sake attitude because the audiences didn't like it they wanted to make something that was kind of you know more fun and had got more people involved so they brought in rock and roll they brought in the the electronic instruments, they brought in, uh, you know, straight rock beats and that kind of thing, and the kind of, like, structure and repetition that rock and roll has, and that's where we get, like I mentioned, Weather Report, Jaco Pastorius, Joe Zawinol, among another, uh, many others, like Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, uh were, you know, big parts of uh, fusion. And then finally, we get into the most recent forms. Basically, nowadays, there are two camps... Of jazz musicians, the anything goes people and the traditionalist. Anything goes people think that there should be no labels, no particular preconceived style, and that jazz can be whatever you want it to be, right? It needs improvisation, and that is basically it, right? You can include elements of anything. And that's, you know, and some people feel that way. Uh, And then there's the mainstream jazz, or the straight ahead jazz folk, like Wynton Marsalis. These are the people who think you need to, like, study the jazz tradition. Uh, a lot of them are most like hard bop players were. They kind of have an attitude of like, this needs to be in higher higher art form. We need to study it. We need to learn it. It needs to be sophisticated, uh, and it needs it should be complicated in a way. But they also really focus on the tradition. Uh, and then there are other kinds of music like m bass, which is macro bass jazz, <laughs> and it's kind of like free funk. It's a, it's interesting. There's also acid jazz. Uh, which includes elements of R&B and hip hop, uh, which acid jazz is pretty, pretty sweet. If you've never looked up anything, any acid jazz, you could check it out. It's pretty, pretty fantastic. Jazz has continued to bring people in. Uh, There are many jazz programs at a lot of universities around the country and jazz clubs in most major cities. And there are a lot of people who are still making jazz in a very, very good way, you know, and, and who knows where it's going to go, right? part of one thing that jazz does is it adapts. It grows. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And while it's not in any way, the most popular form of music anymore, it continues to incorporate the most popular forms of the day in a way that, you know, is, is authentic to what it is because it, it's always been about like personal expression and engaging in what that person is hearing and feeling and the way they want to play. That's kind of where we're going, uh, and and the last one I want to like mention is like the influence of hip hop on jazz, because modern jazz is pretty strongly influenced by hip hop. Like Robert Glasper, um, Herbie Hancock, he's still killing it, and he continues to include hip hop, like new new forms in his music. It's incredible, and then of course jazz has influenced hip hop. I mean, we wouldn't have any of the popular music we have nowadays without jazz. It all came from jazz in some way. Whether you look at rock mm-hmm. and roll, that came from rhythm and blues, which came from jazz, right? You look at even hip hop. You wouldn't have hip hop without basically the, the disco and funk and soul of the 70s, which came from jazz. And even the, like, uh, improvisational nature of freestyle hip-hop. Like, it, you just look back at the at the jazz influence there. It's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. And you can check out, like, A Tribe Called Quest. Don't know if you ever listened to them, but incredible. I love A Tribe Called yeah. Quest. Anyway, so there we are. That brings us up to today. You can go and hear nice. jazz. You can see jazz. Check it out. I know I talked fast, but there you go. Hopefully, hopefully that gave you a little more idea of kind of, like, the progression of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was helpful framing. I've encountered a lot of these, but I I appreciate you kind of putting them into kind of a sequence and like a like a narrative um, to to kind of contextualize it for uh, for me for us.
0: Yeah, because even even for me, like I've I played jazz since I was thirteen, and you know I'm I'm still like learning how certain things fit into like the American story. You know, and certain Mm -hmm. artists and what they did and why they did it and that kind of thing. So, all right, let's do a quiz. All
1: right, let's do a quiz.
0: So all of these questions are related to jazz somehow. So here we go. Question one. Some ragtime pieces by Scott Joplin were used in the score of an Academy Award winning movie from 1973. The music served to give uh, authenticity to the setting, and it was starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman. What was this film?
1: Robert Redford and Paul Newman. I have a guess. I'm not super confident, but I'm thinking about the song... The Entertainer, which I think is not Joplin, being associated with the movie The Sting, and that feels like the right time period for me, and that's my best guess, so I'm going with it.
0: You are correct. It is The Sting, and The Entertainer is Scott Joplin.
1: Oh, it is Scott Joplin. Oh, okay. Cool. I did not know that. Uh, I obviously didn't know that because I just said the opposite of <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, it is uh, from 1902. It was a Scott Joplin piece. But yes, it is The I Sting. I no idea. Nice. It's
1: so like, it's so associated with The Sting uh, mm-hmm. in like when I've encountered it that I assumed it was like in the style, but written for the movie. Nope. Um,
0: huh. You're absolutely not. Yep. You got it. All right. Nice. Question two. In a first season episode of The Office... Steve Carell's character, Michael Scott, says that football is like rock and roll, it's just bam bam boo. And this sport is like jazz, you know? You're kinda doopy doop-doo, doopa-doop-doo. It's all downbeat. It's it's in the pocket, like doop-doo, doo da da What sport is he talking about?
1: Huh. I mean, I'm sure I've seen the episode. But I don't know. Thinking about baseball. Thinking about golf. In the pocket makes me think of pool, but I don't think I'm not going to go. I'm going to go with golf. Let's go with
0: golf. It is not golf. That is the basketball episode.
1: Oh,
0: oh, okay. Play basketball in the warehouse. I really sorry. Yeah. I thought that would be a thought that would be a sorry. slam dunk for it you. Is, it's, it's been a <laughs> Kyle.
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I have watched the episode a bunch of times, but not that recently. Uh, I should have been able to get it.
0: There is a there is a certain association between basketball and jazz. Um, I yes, think in, like in in multiple like media settings. Um, But yeah, that that clip is extremely funny because it's his voiceover uh, saying that over him just being a complete dunce. Yeah. Uh, All right. Question three. Glenn Miller, J.J. Johnson, and Slide Hampton all made their names as trombone players. In English, trombone exclusively refers to the musical instrument. However, in Spanish, the cognate trombone also means what common office supply?
1: Hmm. What common office supply?
0: I can give you a hint if you need a hint.
1: Yeah, give me a hint.
0: Or annoying word processor assistant.
1: Oh. A paper clip?
0: Yes. Yes. Oh,
1: it sort of looks like a trombone, doesn't it? Now that I think about it.
0: But you don't think about it before. But yeah, if you, I don't, I don't know if in New York they have English and Spanish on the products you buy. But every time I get a box of paper clips, it's like paper clips and trombones. <laughs> <It's> like, oh, <laughs> I did not order a bunch of trombones, but okay. Now I have them. <laughs> All right, uh, twenty points. Question four. A picture book published in 2014 is based on the real-life experience of a transgender youth who is a YouTube star as well as a human rights campaign youth ambassador. What is the name of this book?
1: Oh, um, it's like My Name is Jazz or I Am Jazz or something like that. I feel like I've seen the book. Um...
0: I'll, I'll give it to you. It's I Am Jazz. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's I Am Jazz. Yeah. Nice. All right. Yes, it is. Uh... Also, Jazz has another book called Being Jazz, Life as a Transgender Teen. If that is something that uh, is important in your life, you could check those out, Mm -hmm. particularly if you know a young person who could perhaps benefit from those insights. You should check those out. Yeah. Uh, All right. You have 30 points, and this is question five. All right. Black History Month is February, as we know. Jazz Appreciation Month, however, is which month? It shares this month with autism awareness, cannabis awareness, soft pretzels, fresh celery, canine fitness, and appropriately, financial literacy.
1: Oh, um, April.
0: It is indeed April. Yes.
1: Yeah. I I knew that it was uh that April is autism awareness. I kind of figured. Um, yeah.
0: I th- I thought I thought that would be the one that that got you there, if nothing else. Yeah. That list is wild, and that's not that's not even close to the whole list of like what April is the month of. But yeah. That's hilarious. It's...
1: Well, there was what, celery? Did yeah. I hear celery on that list?
0: Yeah, it's National Fresh Celery Month. So, hope you all got your fresh celery last month. Anyway,
1: <sighs> you're I'm at 40 points. All right.
0: You're uh, at 40, 40 points. points. Yay. And uh, the final category is Famous Producers.
1: Famous Producers. Oh, that makes me a little nervous. Oh, Wager 25.
0: Okay. Here's your final. Quincy Jones began his career as a jazz trumpeter on the West Coast. However, he quickly became a composer, arranger, and band leader. He wrote arrangements for Frank Sinatra and led his own band on a European tour. However, he is perhaps best known nowadays for his role as a producer, particularly for what late pop royalty?
1: Late pop royalty. I don't actually know it, but from the wording, I'm going to guess Prince.
0: Ooh. I am suddenly realizing that that is a huge misdirect that I put in there. No, it is not Prince. It is Michael Jackson.
1: Oh, okay, all right. I, um. I
0: had I had King of Pop in my head, and I was like, "Oh, that'll be a dead giveaway." But no, of course, Prince. Like, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, it didn't even cross my mind. <laughs> It was would also very be impressive like,
1: neg bait
0: oh my god I'm I am sorry I'm sorry that I misled you like that
1: that's so you know what like I I appreciate good neck bait um, <laughs> that's why I only wager 25 though Because, okay. like if I were actually confident in the category like that the that's a very knowable thing that I feel like I've probably encountered so
0: sure yeah um yeah, yeah Quincy Jones producer for michael jackson through most of his career instrumental in hell in creating the michael jackson that we that we know or knew mm. um
1: yeah.
0: so yeah okay well you're you're All at 15 right. points uh gave it to you a little rough there at the end but you okay. we have to
1: blow a final question from time to time
0: yeah yeah, yeah. i mean hell i i blew that microwave question a few weeks ago so it's fine <laughs> And that one, that one was a layup. That was easy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but this was a this was a good quiz. I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the deep dive, and I learned some stuff. And uh, I hope our listeners did too. Yeah. So thanks, Kyle, and thanks, listeners. Hope you uh, enjoyed spending your time with us. We certainly love spending our time talking about Jeopardy with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you'd be so kind. Um, if you want to check out our Patreon, again, it's at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know where to find us.
0: You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Podables, on Twitter at Potent 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy recaps and a deep dive. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.